0: We have been talking about the um, spiritual warfare these last several weeks. We have been in the book of Ephesians, kind of having a, a foundation, laying a foundation through the entire book of Ephesians, and then focusing down in these last couple of weeks, focusing down in the armor of God, where the, where the uh, theme kind of comes to a, a culmination in Ephesians chapter 6. And we've been looking at those different pieces of armor, and I, I, I think I might have bit off a little bit too much. We did two verses last week, so we're going to slow down a little bit. We're going to go back to one. I want to, I want to stay at our pace. So so Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 this week, okay? Ephesians 6 and verse 17. And we're going to be talking about two pieces of armor. But before we do, I just wanted to kind of regather us a little bit on this whole idea, this concept of spiritual warfare and the range of what that looks like. Too often, we think about spiritual warfare in the terms of what we know about living the Christian life. And the spiritual enemy is trying to get us, to trip us up in terms of our Christian life merely. And we can easily understand it just in those terms, but it it looks different than that. There's more to it than that. There's that, and there's other aspects as well that I wanted to just kind of remind us of. We've talked about some of this. One analogy that I've used, or it's not really an analogy, but it's a word word play that helps me, and that's to think of this in terms of dust, lust, and mistrust. Do you see what I did there? Dust, lust, and mistrust. What I mean, dust. The enemy would come at us with dust. The things of this world that that seem shiny and bright, and this is what's going to satisfy. This is what you really want, and yet it will be but dust. It will not last. The lust, the desires of our own hearts and our own flesh, appetites, things that if I only fulfill this, the things that I desire and crave, if I fulfill that, then I'm going to be happy. That's going to bring me pleasure. That will complete me. And no, it won't. It's a never-ending spiral. And mistrust, denying God's, denying God's word. Did God really say that? Is that really true? Do people really believe that still? Can you really order your life? Is, you're going to order your life around those old ancient things that people just don't really follow anymore? Dust, lust, and Mistrust spiritual warfare can come at us in terms of temptations even thoughts you can't control your mind is bombarded where is all this coming from it's more than what's coming up from your own our own inherent sinfulness it's not merely desires of our own flesh it's other stuff being bombarded into us compulsive addictive behaviors the resulting guilt so the enemy leads you into something you're entrapped there and then he lays on the guilt to further press you down and to separate you from the God of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. Spiritual counterfeits, cults, all kinds of spiritist and psychic phenomena, the occult, things that are spiritual and yet not true. Just because something is spiritually real and it happens doesn't mean it is true. Because the devil is spiritual and real, but he's a father of lies and deception and destruction. So spiritual counterfeits, troubles in life, these might be economics, it might be illness. That you're experienced with somebody close to you. It might be even death in your circle or people near to you. Can death and illness and economic trouble, can that be as a result of spiritual warfare? Sometimes it's just the result of our mortality and the weakness of our flesh. Sometimes it's the result of this broken world and the effects of it. We live in the collateral damage of the fall. And yet, the book of Job also shows us that sometimes intense troubles that press on us are actually coming from a spiritual source, that the enemy is at work in some way that even as Job never knew that part of it, we get the first two chapters of the book of Job, but Job didn't have that. He didn't know where this was coming from. And yet, his faith is demonstrated before all of heaven then and for us still that we would see what it looks like to wield well a spirit of faith trusting God through things that we don't understand. But troubles come upon us and that also can be the enemy's attacks. Dreams are night terrors. Not being able to focus on reading your Bible, you're trying, you're trying to be diligent unless but that's the one thing. you could read all kinds of things, but you cannot focus or concentrate there. That can be spiritual attack. It can be with you. I was hearing a story earlier this week that both in terms of dreams and also Bible reading, Bible story reading together as a family, that was one of the kids that if they didn't pray, they found things happening in both of those areas. The kids' dreams or nightmares that night or could not focus on reading together as a family. But when they prayed together, even in the midst of when that happened, and they prayed, then that dissipated. Or if they prayed beforehand and guarded that time in prayer, Those things dissipated, those things did not hinder them in the same way. Supernatural, paranormal events, things move, disturb, sounds, appearances, sleek activities, blackouts, direct demonization or control that you see in somebody. There's a lot even that is mental illness, just like sometimes physical illness can be caused by spiritual causes. You see that in the New Testament, you see that in the Old Testament. So also mental illness can sometimes be caused by spiritual sources. Just like other physical ailments can be caused, so also mental illnesses sometimes can be caused. I'm not saying that every mental illness. Do not mishear me here. We are broken people in a broken world. We are physically broken, and our our brains also, our mental activity that comes out of our brains, there's physical process there. And yet, the spiritual realm enters in and to say it simply messes with us in the weakness of our flesh, even our minds. Even some mental illness can have a spiritual cause rather than merely the, the result of chemical imbalance, etc. In all of these areas, one of the things we've been learning, okay, how do we respond? What do we, how, do we, how do we deal with this? How do we confront it? How do we stand? We apply truth. We live in righteousness We we prepare ourselves with the preparation of the gospel of peace as shoes on our feet that we can stand firm in God's gospel of what is true for us, that our security in the gospel ourselves, that firm footing is the means by which we advance and share that gospel as beautiful feet on the mountains of those who bear good news, Isaiah 52. The shield of faith, as I described with Job earlier, and all of these we think about these specific kinds of demonic attack but what about simply the course of this world our culture that the the Ephesians chapter 2 said that before we were redeemed before we were saved we lived according to the course of this world which is according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. As as Satan leaves humanity in this world in a continuing rebellion against God, there are things in our society that are the result of spiritual opposition. It's interesting as you read in In the Old Testament even, Isaiah 59, you read about this kind of thing, that that there are things going on in society, in Israel's society, a society that was founded to be centered upon God and a people living in relationship with God, in a covenant with God. And yet, listen to the description that Isaiah gives of what's going on in society, the chaos in the culture at that time. At the end of Isaiah in Isaiah 59, beginning of verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Why? Because truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. What's he describing? That faith is not welcome. Keep it to yourself. Don't bring what you believe. Don't bring what the Bible says into the public arena where public decisions and public policy is decided. It is not welcome there. It's irrelevant there. Don't bring that Bible stuff in here. That's what we will be told in the public squares of our society today more and more. Truth is lacking, and the one who departs from evil, verse 15 says, makes himself a prey or a target. Truth has been traded for political correctness and spin. And anyone who renounces evil is attacked, makes himself a target. Even in the economic realm, if somebody blows the whistle, whistleblowers end up being punished themselves instead. You need to affirm and agree with what political power says or suffer the consequences. Try to differ publicly about marriage equality. Dare to say publicly that transgenderism actually um, li- hinders equal rights for women. It undermines the rights of women's and of women, and yet um, say that today, and you're going to get a reaction. Suggest that some diversity in behavior is actually deviant. That some phenomena defined as mental illness actually could be. Spiritually derived, spiritually caused. The fact that this ideal, idea censoring, this limitation on what you can bring into the public square and what you dare to say, the fact that that limiting, that censoring is tolerated tells us, warns us, that an even greater authoritarianism is on its way. Because if this is tolerated now, then this move will continue. So that's going to be the environment that we live in. I'm not trying to call you today to a political activism that's going to turn that around. Because the gospel is advancing all over the world. In places where they don't have the kind of, of freedom of speech and association and religion that we have in this country still. And yet the gospel advances because the power of the gospel is never dependent on political permission. Let's get that clear. The power of the gospel is never dependent on political permission and opportunity given to it. The the gospel is powerful because it is the gospel of God. This is God's word. This is God's truth. And it will accomplish its purpose, even in the domain of darkness. So God saw all this. Back to Isaiah 59, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Even the legal process is perverted and twisted and subverted to political ends. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Why won't people help themselves? Why won't somebody stand up and do something? And So then his own arm brought salvation for him. And his righteousness upheld him or delivers him. God has apparently said here in Isaiah 59 that if he wants something done right, the salvation of humanity, if God wants something done right, he's going to have to do it himself. And so he does. So he has. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Oh, now you see where I'm going. Now you see where I'm going. That helmet of salvation, imagery, that's not something Paul came up with on his own. That's not something we just dive into in the midst of of Ephesians chapter 6 and Paul grabs this because he saw a Roman soldier recently. No, this is an image that comes out of the Old Testament. This image comes out of Isaiah like many of the others do. That God himself puts on salvation like a helmet on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. God is going to do what he's going to do. God is going to accomplish his salvation. He's determined to do it. And this helmet of salvation is God's determination, his purpose of mind that he is going to save because there's nobody else to do it. But he can and he will. In the Net Bible, Isaiah is describing God in human terms. He sees there's no advocate. He's shocked that no one intervenes. So he, God, takes matters into his own hands. His desire for justice drives him on. He wears his desire for justice like body armor, breastplate. And his desire to deliver is like a helmet on his head. See how they're bringing out that intention of God is to save. That is his helmet on salvation. In this chaotic wasteland of broken humanity, of the collateral damage of sin in our culture, God himself intervenes. It is his purpose to save. And he calls us to join in that purpose. He calls us then to take on, to take up the helmet of salvation along with that other armor, along with the belt of truth, along with the breastplate of righteousness, along with the preparation of the gospel of peace, along with the shield of faith, and take up the helmet of salvation. That is, be confident. Be confident in God's salvation. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I have two things to call us to today. That is, to be confident... In spiritual warfare, standing against the schemes of the enemy, standing together, standing for others, be confident in God's salvation and be competent with God's words, okay? First of all, be confident in God's salvation. What do I mean? In Isaiah 59, verse 17, this is the God's determined purpose. In Ephesians 6, chapter 17, it is our participation in God's salvation. It is our participation in God's intended purpose. The assurance and the confidence that we are saved, we are sealed, we are seated in Christ. That is immovable, that is fixed, that is unchangeable. God has done that. He raised us up together in Christ. He has seated us in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, that we are sealed by God's own spirit, unto the day of coming redemption. That's our reality. The devil cannot change that. He would like to knock you off that confidence, off that assurance, because he cannot touch that reality. The thing about this assurance is that we do not battle for victory. We do not battle for spiritual victory. Think about it. We battle from spiritual victory it 's an important difference in a sense. We are playing king of the hill. Jesus is the king of the hill. Jesus has put imagine we 're playing king of the, I, I thought about, I could do this with the kids. I could have been the king of the hill this morning. The kids could have run up the steps and try to try to knock me off the hill right and I'd push them all down, but probably wouldn't have gone real well i I thought better of that, and you're glad that I did. But, but that old child's game of king of the hill, that somebody's already on the hill, and the others are trying to knock them down from there. We are already in the place of victory because Jesus himself has put us there. What does Psalm 2 say? I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And whether the world likes it or not, that's what God has determined. That's what God has done. And we are in Christ. So then our assurance is we, we battle from the victory that he has already gave us. That's why we're told to stand, to resist the enemy, and he will flee. We are not told to go out after and go out and find the enemy and attack him. We're not told to go chasing down Satan down the street. No, we are told to stand. And he cannot take us from the victory that God has given us in Christ. Don't let him distract you from it. Don't let him depress you out of it. Don't let him bring despair where we have all the hope of the risen Savior, risen from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. Jesus is the king of the hill. We are in him. Jesus' victory is a place of security and, co- and confidence. Paul used that analogy much earlier, many, many years earlier, a couple of decades earlier when he wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, put on the breastplate of, of faith and love that you live out toward one another and for a helmet put on the hope of salvation. Hope is not an, a hope so. Hope is your confident expectation of what the reality is and will be hope of God's salvation. That's why we don't withdraw from those who are entangled in some form of demonic oppression or demonization. We don't withdraw from them. If something spiritual is going on with somebody else, we're like, oh, I don't want to get away from there. You know, It's kind of like bedbugs. You know? I could help them get rid of the bedbugs, but I might end up taking some home with me, and I don't want that. Demonization is not like that. We can enter in. We can engage without fear. We can stand against the enemy. You know, in the New Testament, there's all kinds of evidence of demonic activity in the New Testament, right? There is not one occasion of demonic contagion where somebody else catches a demon from somebody who has one. It doesn't happen. The only place where that happens is with the herd of pigs. You are not pigs, you are the saints of the living God. You are his own sheep, if you will, not pigs, all right? You have been made clean in Christ. You belong to him. The argument is not, well, can, can, a, can, a, can, can spiritual oppression, can, can demons oppress Christians or not or present, whatever. That's not the point, but this whole idea of contagion. When, I, when somebody is entangled or entrapped by some kind of depression I, it's oppression, I can come near I can come close. I will lay hands on them and pray for them and we will pray together. And we will, we will renounce this enemy and his attack in the name of Jesus, that this one belongs to Jesus, that they have claimed their faith in Christ. Whether it was simple as that, as that woman in India who came to us asking we as Christians to pray because she assumed, she believed our prayers in Christ would be stronger some way. She didn't quite fully understand it. She did not grasp the Trinity that day. And she came with some mark of some other ownership, of some spiritual charm, amulet on her wrist. And when she would remove that in a, in a sense of surrender, denying that ownership any longer and surrendering to Christ, that little faith, that faith of a mustard seed of these who represent Christ can help deliver me from this spiritual oppression that I'm experiencing and she received deliverance that day. She came to faith in Christ. And after cutting that amulet off, she was able, to, she was able to, to confess faith in Christ. Things that she was not verbally able to say before. But we walked with her through that. We had to come near to her to do that. And we were not afraid at all that any of that spiritual evil would, would, would come over us. Because our stand is in Christ. And even if I, as I told you a couple weeks ago, I gave the example of giving opportunity by leaving a garage door open or leaving doors unlocked so that the thief could come in and steal. Even if we have been careless and we have given opportunity and sin in our own lives, that we will confess that. And in the confessing of that sin, we will claim the forgiveness of Christ and on that basis deny the enemy even that hold any longer. And I can do this together. We can pray. If you know how to pray, you can pray for somebody in spiritual trouble as well. You can pray for somebody who is being harassed. You can pray for them. And you, in the name of Jesus Christ, this one belongs to Jesus. This one has been washed in the blood of, in the blood of Christ. And you, the enemy, have no claim upon him. Jesus has bought this one with his own precious blood. And you have no claim. Their sin has been forgiven. Their sin has been confessed. And all that they have done is covered in the forgiveness of Christ. You have no ground upon which to harass them. In the name of Jesus Christ, we command you to depart. That's the authority that a Christian has in Jesus Christ. Our confidence in his salvation for us and those who belong to him. Be confident in God's salvation. Because this helmet image is borrowed... From the Lord's helmet, the Lord putting on a helmet of his determination, his intentional purpose to save, we can understand that our participation in spiritual warfare, our participation in engaging the enemy and standing against his attacks on others is participating in God's purpose. There was none to deliver, and so God sent Jesus, his strong right arm, right? There was none to deliver, and so God sent Jesus, and now he sends you. What did Jesus, I didn't come up with that. That's not my line. What did Jesus say? As the Father sends me, so I send you. Go, therefore. Go. Get engaged. Be confident in God's salvation, his intentional, determined purpose to save and to use you as a participant in his saving work. God sent Jesus. God sends us in Christ's authority on his behalf. Therefore, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God himself did plead through us, we beg you in Christ's stead, in Christ's place, for Jesus, be reconciled to Christ. You are his ambassadors. You are his commissioned officers in this battle. How do we do that? How do we engage? If we can boldly and confidently in his salvation, we can engage the enemy, how do we do that? What does that look like? Romans 10, verse 14 to 17, I think I, I worked through this a little bit last week, lays out that we do this in the confidence of speaking boldly God's word. That the essence of Romans 10, 13, it's quoted out of Isaiah 52, that... How will others believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless somebody tells them? And how will somebody tell them unless they speak? And so faith comes by hearing what you tell, hearing the word of God. And so we need to speak. This is the essence of the incarnation. Didn't Jesus himself say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me? To proclaim salvation to the captives, to proclaim the gospel to the poor. Jesus himself said that. You know when he said that? He quotes Isaiah 61, which is right after Isaiah 59. He quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4, just after himself standing against the attacks of the devil and showing us what that looks like, how to do that for ourselves. And then he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and the spirit of the Lord is upon you if you believe in Jesus, if you belong to him. How will we do that then? The essence of the incarnation is to come near with the gospel. And that's what the sword of the Spirit is for. The sword of the Spirit, the sword, the Roman sword, is not this big, huge, long, broad sword that you might see in the, in the, uh, w- w- among the English knights or something. No, it's about a two foot. It's smaller, lighter, narrower, but with a very keen, sharp two edges. It was intended for close combat use. Not too close, just close enough. And, and so that one-on-one combat, the sword of the Spirit, we're told, is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. It is spoken. It is words that are said. You see, we talk about a silent witness. We talk about a silent testimony. I will testam—I I will give a testimony with my life. My life, the way that I care for and serve and help my neighbor, that will be my silent testimony for Jesus. But how is a silent testimony for Jesus any different than a silent testimony of a Mormon, or a Buddhist, or Baha'i, or Muslim? That's the the silent testimony leaves out the critical part about in the name of Christ, who He is, what He has done. We have got to show. But we have got to say, one of the men um, shared a story about how when he, was, when he was younger, he'd go with his dad to a rescue mission. And there they would share the gospel. They'd give their testimony. He learned early to do that from his father. And um, afterwards, after they would participate in the, in the worship service, share a testimony. Maybe they'd share verses that they knew. And then they would sit and they would have the meal with the men. And one of the men told him that that they so appreciated that this family stayed with them after the church service and, and shared that meal with them. Because there's another guy, he says, that comes and preaches. And he does the service with us, and he has something to say to us. But then he doesn't stay for the meal. We see him go back to his Mercedes. And he gets into his car, and he takes this hand wash stuff, and he washes off his hands afterwards to wash off anything that he might have picked up from us. And what he did contradicted what he said. We need to show and tell. But we need to tell. The Spirit's sword is the Word of God. Now, this word that's used for the Word of God here, there's, there's a lot of overlap in meaning of words, so you can't be too particular here, but two words that are used for the Word of God in the Bible, one of them is logos, the other is rhema. And rhema normally refers to specific words spoken in a particular context. Whereas kind of the bigger general idea behind logos is the expression, the manifestation, the expression of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word there is logos, that Jesus is the expression of God and the fullness of the expression of God. Rhema is normally words of God spoken in a particular context, meeting a particular need. So think of it this way. Logos is the treasury of truth, all of God's truth. Rhema is specific words to meet a need. Logos is an overwhelming arsenal, but rhema is the specific sword in the hand of one soldier. The logos refers to all that God has revealed, where rhema is what you will say today or tomorrow to a grieving friend. You could say rhema is is Logos. Rhema is the specific words of all of God's truth, all that God has revealed, given through God's servant, guided by God's Spirit. Earlier, we were told to be filled with the Spirit. And the filling of the Spirit is connected all through Luke and Acts. Every time, nine times it occurs, filled with the Spirit. Every time it occurs, it's connected with speaking the gospel. Every time. And even in Ephesians 5.18, how what does filling with the Spirit look like? It looks like the way that we talk, the things that we say, the things that come out of our mouth. Those are the things that evidence the filling of the Spirit. So the sword of the Spirit, the Spirit's sword, is the Word of God. It is the Spirit's guided words from God spoken into a particular situation for a particular need. Harold Honor refers to the spoken word of God as the instrument of the Holy Spirit. Instruments that are making a, a sound, a beautiful sound, in harmony, in melody that fits the moment because there's heart and soul behind the instrument as it's played. We hear that in the band. I mean, they they could just make sounds, right? They could make all kinds of sounds that the instruments could make. But they're played. The instrument is played under guidance in a particular direction to meet a particular need. And it's beautiful. And it works. And it does what it's supposed to do. That's the word of God guided by the Spirit through the servant of God. That's what the sword of the Spirit is. It's the Spirit's sword in your hands. The sword in your hands guided by the Spirit of the living God. Particular truth from God that is guided into its right use, into the lives of another person because the Spirit is guiding you. That's why I told the kids, pray and say that we speak to God for people before we ever speak to people for God. Not only that that God would prepare them to hear what it is that I urgently want to share with them, but that God would give me the right words in this context to meet the need that's in their heart. Sometimes we're ready to say Jesus is the answer and we don't even know what question they're asking. Maybe it's a question of guilt, which is good news because that's just the kind of person that Jesus died for. He came to save sinners, not the righteous perhaps it's where is purpose what is what's what's significance what what is life really all about what was i really made for what was i born for you were created by god to lead his creation to join in his greatest work That God loves you. God made you to be in relationship with Him. God made humanity to be His regents and rulers for Him over all of His creation, to care for that creation. That love of gardening and plants, that care for the environment that is precious to you, that's something that is in you because of the image of God who made you. There's purpose, there's significance in the fact that we were created by a god who who made us to love us rather than we are a are are the result of biological chance acceptance once i was far off but now i've been brought near you know, once i used god's word as a magic formula If I could just somehow get a Bible verse that I'd memorized into the conversation, I didn't really have to listen what they were saying. I would just look for the opportunity when I could slip a Bible verse in, and then I'd have them. As long as I got the verse right. You know, sometimes those prepositions can be be tricky. I thought it was of, but I quoted it as for. Will it still work? And what version did I use? What version am I supposed to use if I really want this magic to happen? Is the is ESV okay? Or maybe I, maybe I should go back to the King James. It's a little more, you know, rhyme and, and ancient sounding, and maybe that's going to work better. Whether they understand it or not is not wholly the point, is it? But I begin to realize it's, it's God using his word through me. Sometimes the New Testament authors don't even quote the Old Testament exactly. Let the Spirit guide you. Don't, don't fiddle with God's truth. Don't get me wrong. Don't change it in ways that are going to make it more acceptable and comfortable to a generation in rebellion against God. No, I'm not saying that at all. But be guided by the Spirit of God with his truth. Be competent with God's words. That's why I said God's words not rather than merely think about it in terms of, I know the Bible, so I'm ready to give an answer. Yes, but I want to be confident with the, competent with the words that God would have me to say in this particular situation to this one who's near me in need. The Word of God is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It, guided by the Spirit, will accomplish its purpose. It's able to discern even the thoughts and intents of the heart. And I've thought about that two-edged sword, and sometimes maybe one of the ways that works is it not only works as I extend it outward, but it will cut backwards too. God's Word opens up my heart. And maybe if I myself have been under God's Word first, that's a better place in which I can then share that same Word of Truth with somebody else. Another aspect before we leave it that I want to mention with this word rhema is rhema is often used as the word of confrontation. And don't Don't miss in the midst of this, I've been talking a lot about sharing God's word with others, advancing, so to speak. But remember, the the overarching command here is to stand. The the overarching image is is as, as Christians in Christ standing firm against the attacks of the enemy against us. And your answer to the enemy. What did Luther say? One little word will fell him. Answer the enemy with God's word. Answer his temptations with God's truth. Answer his his distractions, his deceptions. Answer his mistrust about God with the reality of what God has said, with the reality of who God actually is. You have all the authority of Christ. In, in the, one of the books that's there in the information stand about spiritual warfare by Chip Ingram, he tells a story when he, was, when he was fairly new in San Jose and he was out just kind of walking around from his neighborhood into town a little bit at night. So it was a smaller town, not, not a real large town. He'd get into this one area of town. He's going for a walk. It's early evening, but along this strip, there were some clubs and the action would be starting to happen. And apparently some of it had started early. And there was a, there was this club and there was a, there was a bouncer outside and there was these two really big guys. And they, they were, um, they obviously were trying to cause some trouble. They were kind of bullying their way through. The bouncer did not believe that they should enter the cl- club. Apparently the police had already been called because there was a squad car coming down the road. And, and so he says, all right, something's going to happen here. I'm not going to get too close. I'm not going to get in this situation, but I'm just going to watch. You know how we like to do that. Something's going to happen. Let's just see what happens. You know, that's why we get stuck in traffic every day. Because something happens and everybody else has to look. Right? Well, so there he is. He's on, the, he's on the side of the road and he's going to look. And he sees the squad car approaching. He, and, and, and these guys are big. And they've already had too much to drink. And so he's, he's hoping that there's going to be a big burly dude or two coming out of this patrol car. Right? The door swings open and out steps an officer, a young woman. Who could not have been more than four foot eleven, he says. And she steps up toward this big guy. I mean, the bouncer was looking for real help, and this is who shows up, right? And uh, she begins to talk because of what's going on here? She begins to talk with the two guys, and they they begin to press her, they begin to bully, they begin to intimidate. Who are you? What, what do you think you're gonna do? And she responds: she puts one hand on her holster. And she points to her badge and she says, I have been authorized by the city of San Jose to enforce the laws of this city and county. And I am going to tell you one more time to back off, to turn around, to put your hands on the hood of that squad car. And this is the last time I'm going to ask you. You know what those guys did? They backed off. They turned around. These two big guys... Laid their hands on the hood of that squad car, and she proceeded to deal with the situation from there. How could that be? Because she had the authority of the city behind her. We have all of the authority in Christ. Be confident in his salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. She had a sword of a sort on her side. And she was competent and ready to use it. You take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and by the guiding, by the filling of God's Spirit, you are the ones to share His truth. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you that you've given it to us. Lord, thank you that that, uh, we don't stand in ourselves, we don't stand in our strength, we don't stand in our might. But Father, we stand in, in confidence in the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. That you have saved us. You have raised us up. You have set us in the heavens. You have sealed us by your spirit. We are yours. And because we are yours, you send us into the midst. You send us near and close. And against the enemy who would destroy, Lord, those who are around us. Those that we care about. Those that we love because you love. Father, give us confidence, Lord, and Use us in the midst of this battle. Father, we would present ourselves to you. Now is the time of offering. And we have the offering here because we want to respond to your word. We want to give ourselves in return to you because you have given yourself for us. And so, Lord, we present not only that which we bring, the gift, the offering that we give out of what you've provided for us, but, Father, we give ourselves. Lord, these white cards that we would place now in the offering, Lord, We give ourselves there, even in the prayer that we share for ourselves or somebody else in need. Lord, that service that we would offer ourselves for, Lord, would you take it? Would you receive it? Father, would you bless the offering of ourselves given to you for your own purpose in salvation for the people around us whom you love? And we pray it and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.